The following message was recorded during the Friends of Israel 2011 National Prophecy Conference season. These meetings were held in Winona Lake, Indiana and Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more audio resources from the Friends of Israel, visit us at foi.org. One of the biblical prophets who spoke powerfully about a coming time of unprecedented worldwide calamity was the prophet Zephaniah. John MacArthur in his study Bible says this, please listen. Zephaniah's message on the day of the Lord warned Judah that the final days were near through divine judgment at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Yet it also looks beyond to the far fulfillment in the judgments of Daniel's 70th week. The expression day of the Lord is described as a day that is near and as a day of wrath, trouble, distress, devastation, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness, trumpet, and alarm. Yet even within these oracles of divine wrath, the prophet exhorted the people to seek the Lord, offering a shelter in the midst of judgment and proclaiming the promise of eventual salvation for his believing remnant. As I look at the horizon of world events, I see storm clouds. But before the full furor of the storm is unleashed, we see in Zephaniah the Lord calling first his own people to repentance. Then he announces judgment, not just on Judah, but on the Gentile nations as well. If you'll open your Bibles to Zephaniah chapter 2, Zephaniah chapter 2, we begin with the plea. After warning of coming judgment, the prophet says, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation. Before the decree is issued, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. One of the finest Bible commentaries in one or two volumes is, in my opinion, the Bible knowledge commentary that was put together years ago by various professors from Dallas Theological Seminary. One of those professors is a man by the name of John Hanna. He writes this, Having described the awful day of God's wrath on Judah, the prophet at last brought his readers to his purpose. His goal was not to bring the people to despair, but to repentance and obedience. As Matthew Henry so appropriately stated, Zephaniah intended not to frighten them out of their wits, but to frighten them out of their sins. Now there's an interesting word that is used here in verse 1. The word undesirable in the New King James, it's rendered shameless in the ESV, uh, shameful in the NIV, and it means to be pale or white with shame. Judah had no shame, no embarrassment, no blushing because of her sin. When I was a pastor, it would sometimes just break my heart 
To see people who profess to know Jesus Christ go off into deep sin and there was no embarrassment. There was no shame. They were brazen. Sin had hardened the people's hearts and there was no longer any sensitivity to sin or shame because of sin. In verse 3, we move from the plea to the prescription. Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Even though impending judgment was knocking at the door and about to enter, there is still an appeal. There is still time to humble themselves, to repent, and to turn from their idolatry, to turn from their wicked ways. There was still an opportunity to find shelter from the calamity that was about to fall upon them. I met a woman a few years ago in southern Arizona later found that she had been diagnosed with breast cancer. She was married to a man who didn't believe in doctors. He wouldn't let her go see a physician. He didn't believe in conventional treatment. Finally, her situation became so grievous that without her husband's knowledge, she went to a a cancer doctor. He said, I'm so sorry. The cancer has progressed so far, there's there's nothing we can do. But had you come to me months earlier, we could have saved you. My friend, the cancer of God's wrath was upon the horizon. It's upon the horizon today. And now is the time to turn from your sin and to turn to the Savior. We move now from the appeal of the judge to his people to the announcement of judgment upon the pagans. Where does God's judgment begin? Well, Peter reminds us, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? This is why Zephaniah began with the people of Judah. But now he moves to the Gentile nations and explains how the day of the Lord will affect the nations that surround Judah. By way of extension, these nations may well represent the entire Gentile world as the nations that are mentioned correspond to the four points of the compass. There's Assyria to the north, there is Cush to the south, Moab and Ammon to the east, and Philistia to the west. During the day of the Lord, all the nations of the earth will experience the fierce wrath of God Almighty. Let's first of all go to the west, Philistia, in verses 4 through 7. For Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Carathites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitant. The seacoast shall be pastures, with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their captives. Philistia. 
Gaza is considered Palestinian territory today. It was once in the hands of Israel, but Israel was told by the nations of the world, including our own, that if you will only give the land up, there will be peace. Israel gave the land to the Palestinians. Hamas has taken over. And my friend, it has been a bloodbath for Israel. Thousands of rockets have come into Israel from that strip of land. Perhaps you saw Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu on Huckabee this week. He mentioned that Israel was about the size of New Jersey. He said, can you imagine someone sending hundreds or thousands of missiles into New Jersey and the governor of New Jersey being told, don't respond. Or give away land. <laughs> give, give New Jersey to Canada. Then there'll be peace. And yet that is what Israel is being told today. But a time is coming, says the prophet Zephaniah, in which Gaza will be depopulated of its warlike people and it will be converted to a pasture land for a peace-loving people, the Jews. This prophecy was partially fulfilled following the return after the Babylonian captivity, but it will be permanently fulfilled, I believe, in the very near prophetic future. Then we go to the east, Moab, verses 8 through 11. I have heard the reproach of Moab in the insults of the people of Ammon, with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah, overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. This they shall have for their pride, because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. The Lord will be awesome to them, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nation." The Moabites and the Ammonites were descendants of Lot, and they were bitter enemies of the Jews. In Zephaniah's day, they were full of pride and malice as they saw the weakness. Well, first they saw the fall of the northern kingdom, and then the deportation of the ten tribes and the growing weakness of Judah to the south. As this was happening, they took every opportunity to enlarge their own territory. But the prophet sees their land being given over to weeds and salt pits, and even likens that destruction to that of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And even worse for the Arab, the prophet sees a Jewish remnant regaining and possessing the land. This pronouncement was partially fulfilled again after the Babylonian captivity, but we'll see its ultimate fulfillment during the day of the Lord. At the end of the age, the animosity and hatred of Moab and Ammon against Israel will be renewed. Today, the territory of Moab and Ammon lies within the state of Jordan. Thus, the Jordanians are heirs to this ancient mantle 
of Jewish hatred. Now, if Jordan appears to be pursuing a more moderate course today, some would even say a peaceful course, you can be certain that the reason is not their love for the Jewish people, but their fear of the Jewish state, because they have a very healthy respect for the Jewish military. They learn the hard way. But at the end of the age, I believe that Jordan is going to join her Arab neighbors as an active foe of Israel, and all of Zephaniah's predictions are going to have a literal fulfillment. Then we move to the south, Ethiopia, verse 12. You Ethiopians also, you shall be slain by my sword. In Zephaniah's day, Ethiopia, which may well be more of uh, modern-day Sudan than modern-day Ethiopia, she she had allied herself with Egypt against Judah. But the judgment pronounced Uh, here is upon Ethiopia, and its ultimate fulfillment, again, will be at the end of the age. We know, as was pointed out uh, last night from Ezekiel 38 and 39, that Ethiopia, Sudan, will be a part of the Russian Islamic coalition that will attempt to invade and destroy Israel during the first three and a half years of the tribulation. We also know from Daniel 11 and verse 43, as as, uh, Rennie Showers pointed out, that Ethiopia is going to be an ally of the Antichrist in his final wars. This historical and hateful enemy of Israel is going to reap divine judgment. And then we move to the north, verses 13 through 15. And he will stretch out his hand against the north, destroy Assyria, and make Nineveh a desolation as dry as the wilderness. The herd shall lie down in her midst. Every beast of the nation, both the pelican and the bittern, shall lodge on the capitals of her pillars. Their voice shall sing in the windows. Desolation shall be at the threshold, for he will lay bare the cedar work. This is the rejoicing city that dwelt securely, that said in her heart, I am it, and there is none besides me. How has she become a desolation, a place for beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by her shall hiss and shake his fist. Zephaniah tells us that the secure city of Nineveh would become a desolate city. The people of Nineveh were arrogant. They felt superior. And it was not a complex, for they were superior. You probably heard the story of the man who went to his psychiatrist. He had an inferiority complex. And after examining him, the psychiatrist said, you don't have a complex, you are inferior. Well, with those people of Nineveh, they had a superiority complex. It was no complex. They were superior. John Hanna says it well, I quote, it was known, Nineveh was known as the carefree city as its populace felt it lived in complete safety. The city was quite large, having within its suburban areas a circumference of 60 miles and a population of at least 120,000. By the way, we know that from Jonah chapter 3 and chapter 4. In addition to an extensive outer wall, there was an inner wall with an 8-mile circumference, 50 feet thick and 100 feet high. 
Between the two walls was enough farmland to support the huge population. Nineveh's claim, there is none beside me, was no idle boast. For approximately 200 years, she was superior in strength to any city of her time. But then Nineveh fell to the Babylonians in 612 B.C. She was famed for her irrigation system, but she was left dry and barren. Today, Syria and Lebanon sit to the north of Israel. Lebanon is under the control of the terrorist organization Hezbollah, and Syria is aligned with Iran, and together they plot the destruction of Israel. But the fullness of this prophecy will be poured out upon these enemies of Israel during the coming day of the Lord. Warren Wiersbe summarizes this second chapter of Zephaniah with these words. Since the predictions about the destruction of these nations have all come true, isn't it reasonable to assume that Zephaniah's other prophecies will also be fulfilled? Each of these local invasions and conquests was a precursor to the end times day of the Lord, which will come upon the whole world. But when the day of the Lord has run its course, Israel will be delivered and the Lord will establish his glorious kingdom on the earth. Now I have a problem. I had to send in my message titles way ahead for the conference, and uh, I end up with three sermons. I was only given two slots. And my overall theme was Zephaniah from grief to glory. And yesterday and today, all I've given you is grief, <laughs> judgment, judgment, judgment. So we're going to spend just a couple of minutes in the third sermon, chapter 3. Because at the end of the day of the Lord, the Messiah is coming. The Lord Jesus is coming in great glory and great power. And why is he coming? Well, he's coming, first of all, to defend Israel, to destroy her enemies, and then to lead her into the promised Davidic kingdom, to establish the millennium. For how long, folks? One thousand years. And it will be a time of great joy and great glory. And I want to point out just one verse. This will whet your appetite for chapter 3. Verse 17, someone came up to me yesterday and said, oh, I'm so glad you're speaking on Zephaniah. It's my favorite minor prophet and my favorite verse is chapter 3 and verse 17. Listen, the Lord your God is in your midst. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is speaking of a redeemed Israel in the coming kingdom. I was sitting in a church service. The speaker was speaking from Zechariah 3.17. As he read his text, I thought, wow, what a, what a glorious text. It was a good sermon. But this is what I heard. 
the Lord rejoices over the church and the bridegroom is singing over his bride. Now you see, I have this Friends of Israel mindset. Who is the author speaking to? Who is he writing about? Now, I know that our Lord's love for his church is immeasurable, indescribable, incomprehensible. I have no concept of how deep and wide and broad and high the love of Jesus Christ is for me. I don't think I even understand that much of how much he loves me. And I can picture the bridegroom singing over his bride love songs. That's a great application. That's not the interpretation. The interpretation is that during the coming kingdom, King Jesus is going to pick up his guitar and he's going to sing love songs over Israel, his redeemed, restored people. First two chapters, grief. The last chapter, glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the prophet Zephaniah, that his words live today because it is the word of God. Indeed, much of this has come to pass, and yet much is yet to be fulfilled, but we are on the horizon of these events, and we thank you that we are safe and secure within the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we pray for the Jewish community. We pray for the nation of Israel that they will understand your great love for them, that your arms are stretched out to them, inviting them to come to find rest and comfort and peace in the Messiah who came and gave himself for them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.